funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child, and RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, commuters react to New Jersey Transit's proposed fare hike. The double-digit increase is set to be a summer spoiler as the agency tries to dig itself out of a massive deficit. They are not happy. They are not happy with the service that New Jersey Transit is providing right now, and they are certainly not happy with a fare hike of 15%. Also, overhauling affordable housing. Lawmakers look to secure easier access to build and buy housing for those in need. Our efforts here today will codify years of legal precedence and ensure New Jersey's affordable housing system is insulated from changes in leadership or effort to undermine equitable access. Plus, hazardous conditions. An investigative report sheds light on allegations of human rights abuses and mistreatment in New Jersey's county jails. There were complaints that uh, they are denied medications, that they can't see a doctor when they want to, that the phones are down frequently so that they can't communicate with their loved ones. And protecting the Pinelands. There is a presumption that folks are allowed to be wherever they want to be. Well, that's incorrect. The DEP aims to preserve the habitat with updated vehicle maps to prevent illegal off-roading. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Thursday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. Well, first, congestion pricing, now fare hikes. Commuters in New Jersey say they can't catch a break after New Jersey Transit on Wednesday unveiled its new budget proposal, which includes 15% fare hikes for bus and train riders starting as early as this July if approved. Rates would also be bumped up by 3% every year after that for the foreseeable future. The proposal is the rail agency's last last-ditch effort to stave off a $100 million budget hole without cutting service, as nearly $4 billion in federal pandemic relief money dries up and ridership remains below pre-pandemic levels. The proposal would be the first fare hike in nearly a decade, but not if outraged commuters have their say. Senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports. They need to help us instead of taking from us. Fatima Kone commutes into New York on NJ Transit and slammed its proposed fare hikes as unfair and unaffordable. The agency says it needs the money to fill a roughly $100 million budget hole in the next fiscal year. But Kone told advocates taking rider surveys at Newark's Penn Station. It's always dirty. It's not convenient. And then raising the price on top of that, that's ridiculous. They are not happy. They are not happy with the service the New Jersey Transit is providing right now, and they are certainly not happy with a fare hike of 15%. Here, a proposal that does not put riders on the chopping block. A gaggle of progressive advocates denounced NJ Transit's plan to keep the wheels rolling with a 15% fare increase starting July 1st, plus another 3% hike every year after. The agency blames sagging ridership, flagging revenues, and lapsing pandemic aid that will push it over a fiscal cliff in less than two years. But what can riders afford, especially low-income families that depend on NJ Transit? These will have a huge impact in the community 
fees um, that we serve on a daily basis. This is a lot of money to ask riders to pay, especially at a time when New Jersey Transit is faced with a near billion dollar operating deficit by fiscal year 2026. The agency runs with a built-in structural budget deficit, so these fare hikes won't come close to closing its gaping budget abyss. This is also just a band-aid solution to a structural problem. New Jersey Transit's problem is that it has never had a dedicated funding source, unlike several other agencies of similar size across the country. What this does is just kick the can down the road. No doubt NJ Transit and the Murphy administration expected this furious reaction. It's entirely predictable. Lawmakers have watched this fiscal crisis coming down the tracks for years and made political calculations. But this budget will make it five straight years of no fare hikes. From one budget to the next, neither Murphy nor the legislatures ever swallowed that poison political pill. A sixth straight year of no fare hikes on NJ Transit. But now the proposed fare hikes eliciting strong protests from lawmakers. Senate President Scatari said we simply cannot rely on everyday commuters to carry the burden of NJ Transit's billion dollar deficit. Senate Minority Leader Bucco predicted fare hikes will only make it harder for our already financially strapped transit riders to make ends meet. The governor vowed we will continue to pursue additional avenues to respond to NJ Transit's fiscal needs. As for solutions... We call on the legislature and Governor Murphy to invest in public transit and reinstate the corporate business tax. The governor let New Jersey's corporate business tax surcharge expire January 1st, citing a political promise to the business community, even though it could have raised a billion dollars a year. Lawmakers could also raise New Jersey's sales tax back up to its 2016 level, 7%, but that wouldn't be popular either. How much leverage will transit's looming fiscal collapse exert on tax-shy legislators? The governor's office noted he's kept his promise to hold the line on fair increases until the agency improves. Murphy told financial analysts last week, We have, in many respects, fixed NJ Transit through the customer's lens, reliability, safety, confidence, on-time performance. But we now are going to have to tackle what is a growing fiscal challenge, and we're working on solutions there. NJ Transit plans 10 public hearings the first full week of March and expects to get an earful from its riders. In Newark, I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. Affordable housing is increasingly becoming scarce in New Jersey, and today Senate lawmakers met to work on a new version of a bill that'll tackle the crisis. The legislation stalled during the lame duck session, but has more backers this time around and proposes a major overhaul in how the state meets its affordable housing obligation. But as Joanna Gagas reports, the bill will likely go through even more changes before landing on the governor's desk. Well, we're still roughly 200,000 or so units short on the needed number of affordable apartments in our state. The Senate Urban and Community Affairs Committee got back to work today on a package of bills that address the need for more affordable housing in New Jersey. Our efforts here today will codify years of legal precedence and ensure New Jersey's affordable housing system is insulated from changes in leadership or effort to undermine equitable access. 
The most controversial bill, S-50, would abolish the now-defunct COA, the Council on Affordable Housing, that was created in 1985 in response to the Supreme Court's Mount Laurel decision requiring each municipality to ensure a certain percentage of their housing options are affordable. COA has overseen those municipal plans, but this bill moves its oversight to the Department of Community Affairs. And that has mixed reviews. What we need to remember is that COA was, you know, succumbed greatly daily for years to political pressure. And that kind of negates the kind of, you know, umpire aspect that I think we hope to see from a state level mechanism that determines, you know, a town's obligation. We are glad to see this legislation move forward today because we think this is the best way we have seen to make sure that everybody who wants to live in a community has the ability to do that. COA is the solution, not the problem. The one brilliant thing about the, the Fair Housing Act as originally designed was it evenly balanced those that, that um, bore the responsibility, municipalities, and those that wanted affordable housing. What's missing from this bill is where is the balanced body? Since COA began, there have been three rounds of affordable housing mandates once every 10 years. A number of factors are considered, including recent census data indicating how many people have moved into a region. But as the deadline approaches to begin round four development, many towns are still working to complete round three. You have 345 towns that settled. Much of the development from those approvals is going to take place in this round. No one's accounted for that. Some of the greatest opposition was around the need for more data to understand how many units municipalities have already built before this next round of affordable housing obligations are doled out. What's the fair share number? We did our best to, to, to estimate it, but we understand that maybe the assembly has that information. I don't know if you have it, if anybody has, you know, what has actually been built in each region, how many units have been built? Under the bill, DCA would have to publish a report on the regional need as well as each municipality's obligations. Some towns say their specific needs or challenges aren't being considered, and then they'll face fines when they can't comply. This amount of development will, will impact our schools, our infrastructure, and our environment, which doesn't even touch on the issue of lack of sewer capacity. Using inclusionary housing as the primary mechanism forces municipalities to build large market rate projects in exchange for a handful of affordable units. In New Jersey, unlike like in other states, we cannot require developers to pay for many of the infrastructure impacts of their developments, including on our schools and police and fire departments. Because of this, the law forces taxpayers to subsidize for-profit developers without necessarily netting a lot of affordable units. The bill did move out of committee along party lines, with committee chair Troy Singleton saying that more work will be done on the bill before it reaches the governor's desk. In Trenton, I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News. One year after Attorney General Matt Platkin launched a unit dedicated to investigating human trafficking, his office today unveiled a new way to tackle the issue, a public awareness campaign aimed at increasing reporting of forced labor and commercial sex crimes. The new campaign will plaster signs in multiple languages throughout public spaces in New Jersey, specifically in bathroom stalls or bus stations and truck stops where victims are more likely to be alone and safe from their 
trafficker. The posters will have hotlines and other resources to report the crime and get help. Law enforcement leaders say they're working to crack down on the abuses, which happen state and nationwide, while bringing victims to safety. Today's launch coincides with the 14th annual Human Trafficking Awareness Event. According to Plotkin, in 2023, his new unit connected 23 suspected victims of sex trafficking with help. It's actively prosecuting 11 human trafficking cases and sentenced five offenders for related charges. New Jersey's county jails are rife with human rights abuses and mistreatment, according to an investigative report by New Jersey Monitor, in which inmates say the conditions inside the correctional facilities are so poor they'd be hazardous even to a dog. Critics have long pointed out that county jails lack the same oversight and transparency as state prisons, despite the fact that they routinely pass regulatory inspections or that more people cycle in and out of county jails than state prisons. Some 10,000 inmates are behind bars in 16 county jails on any given day in New Jersey. Dana DiFilippo looked into the complaints and joins me with her reporting. Dana, it's so good to have you on the show and thank you for sharing this reporting with us. Just walk me through, first of all, some of the complaints that you found and these details of the conditions inside the jails. Sure. So we first started looking at this because of Mercer County Jail. Um, specifically, we had seen on social media and we had a couple of people reach out to us directly about uh, the physical conditions there. There's mold on the walls. The well, They often turn off the water because there's leaks and I'm not sure why else they might turn it off, but that restricts then people's access to toilets, to showers. Um, to a drinking water even. Um, and so uh, so, th so that was a large issue, um, just utility outages. Um, they don't have, uh, they don't seem to have anyway, uh, working laundry. And so, uh, you know, if you go there, you're wearing a jumpsuit and you either have to keep wearing the same jumpsuit without laundering it, or you have to watch it, wash it yourself. And so uh, folks told us that they were doing that in mop buckets and mop sinks um, and hanging them up to dry. Um, they had, you know, problems beyond the physical. Um, they have, they were, there were complaints that uh, they are denied medications, that they can't see a doctor when they want to, that the phones are down frequently, so that they can't communicate with their loved ones. Um, there were all, all sorts of kind of quality of life uh, problems that were reported to us, but also um, just treatment. So they were, there were complaints about how uh, they were treated by uh, prison staff. Um, there are a lot of assaults at that prison. Um, in general, we found that there was a, a lot of assaults reported uh, in most of the county jails, um, and uh, Mercer's was one of the higher ones. Uh, so it sounds like there's kind of the whole the whole gamut there of problems. And yet, this facility, along with the other county jails, routinely and annually pass inspections that are mandated. How are they able to do that? So the inspections are done by the State Department of Corrections. They do them every year. Um, and uh, it's not clear how they're able to pass them like that. The um, department does check for regulatory compliance. So the uh, reports that they do or the, the things that they fill out, it's uh, largely a checklist. Um, they're fill in the blank forms. So they're um, checking for things like, uh, are they doing this training? Are they, is there this much space in the day rooms? Um, you know, are they offering educational classes, that kind of stuff. Um, and so you literally check on, on the forum, compliant or non-compliant. Um, and so they're not, there's, there's lot, lots of things they don't 
uh, measure. It sounds light. very black and white oh, with those inspections. Yeah. No gray right. area for these, like you said, physical or um, humanitarian type conditions. Exactly. They're checking for regulatory compliance, not necessarily for human rights uh, problems or abuses. So, okay, I know you reached out to a number of people through your reporting. What is it that watchdogs want to happen and why has it been allowed to continue to this point? Because years ago there was talks of shutting down the Mercer County Jail in particular. So the uh, main problem here is that there's not really any um, oversight. And so uh, for state prisons in New Jersey, there's an ombuds person who uh, does these kinds of human rights checks. He issues, uh, his name's Terry Schuster, and he issues uh, you know, regular reports, not just annual reports, but he tackles all kinds of, of topics. But he is statutory, statutorily um, tasked with only looking at state prisons. And so there is no real kind of independent, strong oversight of the county jails. And the watchdogs that I talked to said there should be. Um, it should be outside of the county. It should be outside of corrections. Um, it should be civilian led. Um, and they should uh, talk to folks who are incarcerated in these facilities, um, visit them and, and uh, you know, do these kinds of human rights checks, quality of life checks uh, that are missing right now. Dana DiFilippo is a senior reporter with New Jersey Monitor. Thank you so much for your reporting. Sure, thank you for having me. When it comes to government contracts, the vast majority of business in New Jersey is going to white male owners. That finding comes from a report commissioned by the Murphy administration where experts analyzed more than $18 billion worth of public contracts doled out over five years. The study shows that despite making up a significant pool of eligible businesses, women and minority-owned firms are largely being shut out. As Raven Santana reports, the Murphy administration is now vowing to fix it. Black people are being ignored here. We're not being heard. John Harmon, president and CEO of the African-American Chamber of Commerce of New Jersey, did not hold back when expressing his disappointment in a recently released report on the disparity of public contracting opportunities for minority and women-owned businesses. The study, which was conducted by Mason Tillman Associates, reviewed statewide data relating to goods and services, professional services, and construction over a five-year period. Every category, blacks were on the bottom. According to the report, minority-owned businesses represented 27.97% of the available construction businesses, but received only 3.69% of the dollars for prime construction contracts, valued from $65,000 to $5,710,000. Likewise, minority-owned businesses represented 23.56% of the available goods and services businesses, but received only 4.24% of the dollars on prime goods and services contracts valued from $40,000 to $360,000. You know what you're saying when you make a, a proposal and, and you come up with nothing and then you go buy the job and you see someone else doing what you uh, petitioned to do. You know what happened. MTA reviewed more than 1.2 million records and 240,000 contracts from over 60 contracting agencies, authorities, commissions, state colleges, and universities. The contracts reviewed were awarded between July 1st, 2015 and June 30th, 2020. They concluded that disparity in the awarding of public contracts exists across multiple minority-owned and women-owned business enterprises in the sectors of goods, services, professional services, and construction. 
this is my personal opinion. I'm not speaking for any of the organizations that I sit with, but this is a systemic issue that it's, you know, it's continuing to happen, but bringing a document like this, a research document like this out into the light is going to disrupt the system. Monica Martinez Milan is owner of Stumpy's Hatchet House in Greenbrook, a board member of the statewide Hispanic Chamber of Commerce of New Jersey, and recently was named the new chair of the Somerset County Business Partnership. Milan says she was disheartened by the data, especially when it comes to women-owned businesses. Um, the reports show it. So to see that discrepancy, it hurt. It hurt our community. And the whole point of having this this study is to put it out into the light so that we could start truly making a change. According to the report, women-owned businesses represented 37.75% of the available professional services businesses, but received only 9.91% of the dollars on prime professional services contracts, valued from $40,000 to $800,000. Still, Milan remains positive that change has been happening and will be accounted for. More and more people have become certified since the studies came out. So we don't know the numbers yet, um, what the difference would be as to how, you know, where we are today. The, the disparity is too wide to make it up overnight. The, the acts have to be very intentional and they have to be rather large and impactful to make a difference. For NG Spotlight News, I'm Raven Santana. Turning to Wall Street, stocks rose today after stronger than expected growth in the U.S. economy. The GDP increased 3.3 percent in the fourth quarter while inflation cooled. Here's how the markets closed. After years in the making, the State Department of Environmental Protection this week released new maps to manage vehicles in the Pinelands. It includes some 200 miles of legal routes through the massive Wharton State Forest where drivers can travel without fear of damaging the natural habitats that are protected by state law. But even after all the deliberation, some environmentalists worry the new plan may be too restrictive for visitors and nature lovers alike. Ted Goldberg reports. Going through Wharton State Forest is supposed to be an adventure. Unfortunately for visitors, driving through its roads is an adventure too. There are places that are just so wet, they're appropriate for a canoe, not appropriate for anything that's four-wheeled and, and mechanized. The DEP has proposed a new map of the Pinelands for vehicles to drive. It includes 200 miles of roads where street-legal vehicles can legally travel. Assistant Commissioner John Cecil says the department wants to clearly mark and maintain these roads so people aren't left guessing where to drive. It's not a matter of just running out and um, knocking somebody over the head with a fine. It's, you know, it, assuming that they're not there doing something totally malicious. If you, people are following their GPS units in places that it's telling them that they can go when they really shouldn't be there. There is a presumption that folks are allowed to be wherever they want to be. Well, that's incorrect. Commissioner Sean LaTourette pushed back on criticism that the DEP is cutting down Wharton's roads from 500 miles to 200 miles. LaTourette says many of those roads shouldn't be driven on to begin with. We know folks are in areas that they shouldn't be, either because it's dangerous for them or because it is destructive of, of a natural resource that is legally protected. 
The DEP invited the public to a seven-hour open house yesterday to explain their reasoning for the new maps. Come on in and take a look. Thank, Thank you all. They say there were several factors in choosing legal roads, environmental impact, highly traveled areas, and places with historical significance. People have argued about visiting vehicle maps for a while, and if the DEP should lean towards preserving nature or increasing access to it. How to get from A to B, is it, is it going to be reliable? Can you actually go there um, and not get stuck in the mud? And, you know, have some expectation that they'll maintain these things over time, these routes over time. Jason Howell is an advocate for the Pinelands Preservation Alliance. He thinks the maps are a good compromise and might entice people to visit the Pinelands. I think it is very generous in terms of bringing people into the forest. It'll bring people in in a way where they're not going to be confused. They're going to know where to go, how to get there, and what they can do when they're there. But not everybody's on board with these maps. I'm disappointed, actually. I'm, I'm actually very disappointed. I think that's going to really restrict access to um, you know, uh, people who have, have had that access for really hundreds of years. John Druding leads Open Trails NJ. He's concerned that people will be fined for driving on roads they've always used and says 200 miles of roads isn't enough for Wharton's 124,000 acres. I thought after what happened with 2015 and uh, the state overreach and then having to retract that, they might you know, learn a little bit more about the needs of the stakeholders and what the people you know, actually want and what they need this, this access for, and it looks like they didn't learn a whole lot. In 2015, the DEP first proposed a visiting vehicle map and withdrew it after hearing heavy criticism. Druding says the lack of access might make it more difficult for people to enjoy Wharton State Forest. Maybe someone who's maybe a little older, maybe someone who has, you know, little kids, maybe somebody who's, who's disabled, maybe somebody who's trying to uh, move a 50-pound kayak from their car to, a, you know, water access is going to have some trouble. In 2021, the DEP raised its fines for illegally driving through the Pinelands. $250 to $500 on the first offense, with higher fines if someone damages natural resources. If you want to make your opinion heard, the DEP is taking public comment until March 9th. In Wharton State Forest, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. That's going to do it for us tonight, but make sure you catch Reporters Roundtable tomorrow. I'll be in the seat for David Cruz and kicking off the show with former Congressman Tom Malinowski. We'll talk his decision not to seek the U.S. Senate seat up for grabs, but to instead endorse former House colleague Andy Kim. The blowback from the Murphy campaign and his next political moves. Then a panel of local reporters break down this week's political headlines. Watch Roundtable tomorrow at noon on the NJ Spotlight News YouTube channel. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great evening. We'll see you here tomorrow. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years. And by the PSCG Foundation.